Welcome in to the best in true crime podcasting. This is True Crime Tuesday. I'm your host, Tim Dennis. I read an interesting book this past weekend. I got to tell you guys about it. You know, a lot of times we in true crime will reach back into history and we'll reach back into a popular era in history and want to pull it forward and relate to some popular eras in history. One of the ones that we like to reach back into is the Ripper era, the Jack the Ripper era. And I was intrigued about this particular book that was brought to my attention by Alan Warren. It's called Filthy Murders of Ye Old Rochester, Monroe County Homicide in the Era of Jack the Ripper. Now, Alan said, you got to read this book by Michael Benson. It's intriguing. And I'll tell you, there are some darn good stories. In it. And I took a look at it. I read it. And boy, he was right. Uh, Michael is, has been on our program previously and brought some incredible books to our program. And as soon as I read this, by the way, Michael is from Rochester, New York. Uh, as soon as I read this, not only was I impressed, I, uh, I said to myself, I didn't know that there were this many stories about murders in Rochester, New York. First of all, impressed by that. But second, the fact that there are this many bloody stories about Rochester or stories of intrigue about Rochester. So I want to bring Michael on right now. Let's talk about these bloody ties to old time Rochester, New York. Michael Benson was born in Rochester and raised in Chile, New York. He is one of the world's most popular true crime writers. His books include Nightmare Rochester, Betrayal in Blood, Killer Twins, and The Devil in Genesee Junction. Tell vividly of heinous criminals, their tragic victims, and the clever and stalwart lawmen who bring them to justice. On TV, he's appeared on ABC's 2020 and is a regular contributor to the investigative Discovery, Oxygen, and HLN channels. He has appeared on Murder in the Family, Inside Evil. People Magazine investigates evil twins and evil kin. Michael has a BA with honors in communication arts from Hofstra University. He's the winner of an Academy of American Poets Award and was in 2016 named a Wheatland Chili High School graduate of excellence. Let's welcome in to True Crime Tuesday, Michael Benson. Once again, Michael, how you doing? Hey, good night, Tim. How you doing? Good night. Are we leaving? <laughs> no, just, good evening. Oh, good evening. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just joking <laughs> with you. Michael, uh, first of all, I'm intrigued by the fact that there's, there's so much. First of all, when I was telling somebody, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book about Rochester, New York, and some of the bloody murders in Rochester, New York, they first said there was action in Rochester, New York. And oh, I said, boy. yes. Yeah. And I said, and there's a lot of it. Rochester has been known for its violent crime for now. I know a hundred years. Uh, I, I grew up on a dirt road in the town of Chile, not Chile. Sorry. I'm sorry. Is it Chile? I'm it's sorry. A, it's Chile. It's, it rhymes with highlight. Nobody knows why the town is called Chile, what it means or why it's spelt like Chile. And it's absolutely ungoogleable because all you get are recipes if you try to find it. <laughs> um, but anyway, I grew up in, I grew up in Chile, New York, which is south of Rochester, end of a dirt road. And my origin as a true crime writer comes from a thing that happened, bad thing that happened to me when I was nine. Uh, didn't happen to me, it happened near me. My babysitter, Georgianne Formicola, was 14, and her friend, Kathy Bernhardt, from down the road, were brutally murdered. They went swimming in a swimming hole behind my house, you know, behind the barn and back by the creek, and uh, didn't come home. And they were found a month later on the other side of my dad's property, Horribly 
butchered like a Jack the Ripper crime. Oh, my God. Parts missing, intimations of cannibalism, all of that. Uh, totally messed up the neighborhood, messed up childhood. Um, grew up to become a true crime writer. Not a coincidence. I did a couple of investigations. Um, one of them in Rochester. I wrote Betrayal and Blood about the murder of uh, Tamara Diarrhea, Tammy uh, Bryant mm -hmm. in Penfield. Uh, and I did a couple others as well. And then I went back to Chai Lai, teamed up with a private detective, the mom of one of the victims who was still alive. She uh, signed papers to make me the family investigator. And we pretty much solved the crime, which had been had gone unsolved all of those years. Uh, we found out there was not a psycho passing through. It was an in-law of one of the victims who was a real creep. And the cops at the time had gone around and had asked all the adults what they knew, but nobody had talked to the children. And what I found was that there were a series, an incredibly long series of women in their 50s who were 10 years old at the time, and all of them had been dragged back by the creek and raped that summer and were told that they would be dead if they screamed. Whoa. And apparently Georgianne screamed. And so unfortunately we couldn't we couldn't get justice, but justice was done in a way because our our, our named killer was uh imprisoned for seventy-five years in Texas for incest and lasted only a couple of weeks because his fellow inmates didn't like his sort. So that's as close wow. as a to a happy ending as we can get there. But what happened was the Devil at Genesee Junction came out in Rochester, and I, it was a big hit locally. Could have sold better than the rest of the world. I once said to a, a woman from Scottsville, New York, uh, you know, the problem is only local people are interested in this case. And she said, oh, that's not true. I know I know a woman from Caledonia, next town over, mm -hmm. who also likes it. So it's not just local. So well, if we can get as far as Buffalo, that would be good. Um, so my follow-up book was Nightmare in Rochester, which was about the double initial murders in Rochester, a series of, of unsolved crimes involving 10-year-old girls with the same first and last initial, really? um, which Rochester just went nuts about because uh, little girls with the same first and last initial were terrorized, and girls without the same first and last initial were thought of as being off the hook. Mm -hmm. When, if you examine the facts, there are only three victims, so it's, it's very little chance and no indication that the killer cared how these girls spelled their names that they were chosen because they were little girls alone on the street abductable nobody was watching um it was accessibility and he was looking for a sex crime but it's still known as the alphabet murders or the double initial murders and everybody's still wondering how this guy could know in advance how these girls spelled their names and that's where the investigation went instead of saying no what you got here is a pedophile who picks up girls in a car yeah let's let's look you know, then there was a there was another incident uh, a couple of years later in which the abducted girls did not have the same first and last initials and a cop a chief of a local police department actually said, well, we don't think it's the same guy. These girls' first and last names start with different letters. I said, blah, blah, blah. My, my brain exploded. You, you have a guy going around with a car, picking up girls, doing bad things to them. You know, there aren't many of those in Rochester. There can't be. Right. Uh, stop thinking in terms of, uh, did he get a list from the Catholic school rosters? You know, no, none of that. He cruised around until he found a little girl by herself. And three... It, Three for three, he got girls with the same first and last initial, just lucky. Yeah, yeah. And for Rochester, 
did not buy that one bit. They like the book, <laughs> but they're they're just not going to let go of their belief that all that fear they had when they were when they were little was based on something that uh, was a false pattern. So anyway, did, after that, mm -hmm. I became a cold case investigator, uh, not a terribly good one, but because of my success with Genesee Junction, you know. People said, well, maybe, why don't you take a look at this case? Why don't you take a look at this case? And I, I got myself really uh, emotionally spent because I was talking every day to people who were remembering the, the worst thing that ever happened to them and they're, they're grieving for their lost loved ones and why the police can't figure out who did it and why I can't figure out who did it either. And even if you figure out who did it, you can't prove they did it. All of that, I put aside as no, next book, Next book about Rochester, I'm going to write about 1888, the era of Jack the Ripper. Because, first of all, everybody who reads Jack the Ripper books doesn't have to be from London to think it's entertaining. Sure. Uh, it's the era that makes it interesting. Right. So, in my never-ending search for a national hit, <laughs> I, I went back to Rochester, but I only wrote about the murders that took place in the late 19th century. And of course, one of the one of the Jack the Ripper suspects is from Rochester, too, which which made it a little bit interesting. Yes, yes, indeed. And in the name of the book, in case we were remiss in saying it, Filthy Murders of Yield, Rochester, Monroe County Homicide in the Era of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, I've been what? sticking with just filthy murders. I think that's filthy murders is, you know, is good. People get to yield Rochester and they stutter every time. Ah, just okay. Filthy murders. They take place in Rochester. Filthy murders. They take place in Rochester. Yeah. One of the things, I want to backtrack here for a second here, sure. uh, Michael, if I can. And you were mentioning cold case murders, and especially in Rochester. I, I, I want to I ask you this, because it is, to us, in the rest of the U.S., you would think, well, it's a smaller community. Is it really that small of a community, first of all? Second of all, with the invention of DNA, why are there so many cold cases in, in Rochester? Why are these not more solvable? Uh, some of these cold cases, and and do you not get uh, cooperation to help solve some of these cold cases with the local authorities? Uh, are you working hand in hand with authorities when you're trying to, as you're writing some of these books, to solve some of these cold cases? Yes. Uh, usually, I work with a retired member of law enforcement, and whoever was the cold case officer at that time. The cold case files get passed from detective to detective. Mm -hmm. There is no single cold case officer. And I would find that the, the, the personality of the different cold case officers would, would vary to the point where I would be getting cooperation one week and then you know his stint was over and he moved it over to the next guy and the next guy didn't like armchair Sherlock's or whatever he, they thought I was. Sure. Um, what happened with the uh, the 1966 case when I was nine, um, I talked to one cold case officer and he said, I went and I looked at the evidence and we still have a lot of it. We have the bloody bathing suits that the girls wore back in the swimming hall. They, they were still wearing the parts of them. Um, and uh, we have this and this and this and this. And I said, well, why can't you get DNA off of those bathing suits? And he said, well, I asked a DNA guy about it, and they said, well, it's been degrading so long that it's probably no good. And because there's so much of the victim's blood, it may overwhelm any male blood that might have got on the bathing suits. Mm -hmm. when I, and I found out that that was true in 1995. Okay. But this was 2015. So I went to a DNA expert in South Carolina, 
um, a guy by the name of Gray Amick. And he said, there's no such thing as overwhelming anymore. We can, we can take a droplet and then uh, exponentially amplify the female. Uh, and there's no, no such thing as degrading anymore, unless it's absolutely no longer blood at all. You know, we can, we can, get, a, we can get a read off of it. Mm-hmm. So I go back to the Monroe County Sheriff's Department now, and I say, I just talked to a DNA guy, and I think you need to check for DNA again on this evidence. And the guy says, there's no evidence. That evidence was lost years ago. Oh, so now I'm in a situation where I don't want to call anybody a liar. Yeah, but the you know you think the guy before you gave me a completely different story. Uh, anyway, so this this is why we can only you know guess that we have the right killer, even though it, you know we found a, a serial uh, rapist who is threatening little girls' lives, and then a little girl dies in, in the same manner in the same location. Pretty sure we found the guy, but we couldn't prove it because uh, you know the, the DNA had been lost. Um, so the, the level of co- uh, cooperation changes. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, in some cold cases, memories get to be a problem. Yeah, you talk to the uh, to the lead investigator on a case, and he gives you his memories, and then you get access to the, the initial police reports, and you realize he's got it mixed up with another case. Ah. And you go, what do, what do we do now? Because the best evidence is the written stuff, but the guy I have to deal with, I don't, I don't want to tell him he's wrong 80 times. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's all in all, uh, interesting thing to do in life. I felt like I was doing a good deed. I had many people tell me I was angelic and that I was mending things inside of them with my interest in their case. But uh, I- unless you actually solve the case, it could be one of the most frustrating things in the world. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and I'm sure it, for some people, it may feel like it's picking open an old wound. Right. Um, oh, sure. Why? Yeah. What do you have to bring that up for? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, and then I, plus, I was doing things to scare people anyway because I wanted to sell books. <laughs> and I said, "Well, <laughs> the, the murders in Child I took took place in June of 1966 at 666." Now, if oh, you go to yeah. the, now, if yeah. you go to the next satanic holiday yep. after after June 25th, which is the solstice. You get to uh, the the All Hallows Eve, and that's the day Cherry Joe Bates is killed in Riverside, California, by a fellow who's thought to have become the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, and you go a little further, and you get to Richard Speck knifed a bunch of Filipino nurses uh, during that summer, and Charles Whitman opened up a Pandora's box when he committed the very first campus mass shooting during the summer of 1966 at yep. the University of Texas, yep. top of the big tower. Yeah. Uh, people think Columbine, but it wasn't. It was no. uh, it was no. Austin, Texas. Yeah. Um, so a lot of things happened in the summer of 1966, and, and things seemed to get more violent, more horrible after that. And as all Pandora's boxes, you can't get, can't get the evil back in again. That's true. That's very true. Uh, let's turn our focus to filthy murders here. Uh, sure. So you've you put together this book. You've gone back to the. Of course, you've mentioned why you've gone back to that era of of the. Uh, yeah, the my own peace of mind. For your own peace of mind, of the late eighteen hundreds. Um, was it easy for you to farm these these five stories, or or was it uh, was it a little tougher for you to farm these stories, or did they relatively come together quite easily? Much easier than I anticipated. Really? And that's because uh, a lot of the things that they didn't have back then are hindrances to investigation. 
But one of the things they didn't have back then was recording equipment. Ah. So everything that happens has five stenographers. You got a stenographer from the from various newspapers. Uh, you have stenographer from the uh, from the coroner, one from the uh, from the Justice Department. Uh, probably one for each head attorney at a trial. So there are all kinds of transcripts. Um, now, I've been accused in the past of just typing court transcripts. And I say to those people, you've never read a court transcript. Um, <laughs> because editing for conciseness is what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but a lot of filthy murders takes place in, in the morgue, um, not only during autopsies, but during coroner's inquests takes place in, in small hearings rooms, takes place in the largest courtroom in uh, in Monroe County. And in every case, there was somebody there with little squiggles and shorthand uh, taking down every word, which, and in some cases, all of that was then published in the next day's newspaper, which didn't have photographs, so they needed a lot of text. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, th- and that said, uh, it, it's sometimes difficult to figure out why things happen because a person who's just taking down everything that's said um, is not necessarily registering in any way uh, the cause and effect of, of what's going on. But, you know, I, I think that when you read the book, first of all, it's every bit as scary mm-hmm. as if it had happened today. Maybe scarier because it takes place in such a dark world, um, sooty. Rochester in 1888's just you know, smoky and and dark. Even uh, you know, as as everybody who in the area knows, it's often cloudy. And at night there were very few streetlights. Electricity is a brand new thing. Uh, the the um, all the talk is about the new electric streetcars that are taking people to Lake Ontario. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but the streetlights uh, are still kerosene, and a guy has to go and light them. In the uh, twilight, the twilight, and then put them out at dawn. Um, the um, so the yeah. I, I was going to say, let's let's jump a little bit into the individual stories you have here sure. in the book. Let's talk about the uh, the Stone Killer first. Uh, the the murder of Ada Stone, which yes, which takes up a good part of the book, but it does for a reason, and it it's it's kind of talks a little bit about the what what at the time they called the tramp community or the, the, the drifter community, the homeless community. Right. I, I, I shouldn't say homeless community because these are, these are homeless people who, well, I guess for lack of a better term, they, they traveled from community to, to community. We, we, we in modern day, I shouldn't say modern day, but when we were growing up, Michael, they were, they were called hobos, but uh, right. that's, that's not a, sure. it's not a very politically correct term. But you travel from community to community. You'd live off whatever you could live off of. Uh, you would hope for the kindness of strangers. You'd gather food wherever you could. Uh, and it would, you know, you'd maybe pick up a little bit of work if you could pick up work. And the idea was that there would be non-combative or non-conflicting, but that's not necessarily the case. There was a little bit of a criminal element there, wasn't there? Well, sure. I mean, these guys have to survive one another, for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're often in freight cars or on a, on a barge on the Erie Canal with you know a, a nasty guy. Not all these 
not all the tramps were nice. And yeah, I call it, I think there were, there were even when I was little, back by uh, Black Creek on the other side of Black Creek, which is now airport runway, uh, there were often campfires going. And my mom, talk about not politically correct, she said, well, that's where the bums are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and I think it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of a glimpse into a world before there are uh, social security programs. Okay. I mean, there's, there's no welfare. If you are, for one reason or another, unable to make a good living, you really have to stay on the move uh, or else find someone to take care of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think that's why they were more likely to be drifters than perhaps today. Uh, there was There's no way to get a check uh, from the government, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the one tramp we deal with most in, in Stone Killer is uh, a fellow he's, he's he's first of all he's only 16 yeah uh he was he was beaten horribly as an infant his rib cage is caved in uh he walks with an unusual gait probably because of leg injuries he's got uh, one side of his face that is asymmetrical one eyes a, a little wonky as they say mm-hmm. uh although i, I didn't find a, a, a precise enough description to figure out exactly what was wrong with his eye. Okay. There was a shadow across it that gave everybody a chill when he looked at them. Okay, well, I, he got beat up as a baby. I think it's an injury is what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, as is true of all this, the, first of all, the crime itself, uh, it's, here, let me go to my, my notes here for a second. It's August 16th, 1887. It's a warm, perfect day in Rochester. Not a cloud in the sky. Temperature in the high 70s. That's as good as it gets in Rochester. Yeah. Uh, and in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Alonzo A. Stone on Rochester East Side on the north side of Hayward Avenue, which is still there, there was a small cream-colored cottage with a cluster of well-tended nasturtiums on either side of the door. Beautiful little place. Idyllic. And the Stones are an industrious young mechanic, his good-looking wife, and their three-year-old boy, who lived there since May. And uh, on that morning, um, Alonzo Stone goes off to work, comes home for lunch, goes back to work. And he's only working about 150 yards from home, okay. building a house with his with his best friend, and we'll get to him. Yep. Um, comes home for dinner, and... His, uh, his child is wandering around saying mommy went downtown shopping. And, you know, Alonzo knows that's not true because the little kid's wandering around. Uh, finally finds her in the basement. Uh, she's on the dirt cellar floor. She looks like she had been interrupted while doing the laundry. A bag had been tied very tightly around her neck with a single knot under the right ear. Uh, it was a flour sack, blood-stained. Detectives assumed that the sack must have been one of the items Ada had washed that day because there wasn't a trace of flour inside it. The body was dressed in ordinary working clothes, which were soiled with sand, coal, and charcoal. Uh, Importantly, there was soil and uh, debris both on the inner and the outer clothing. Um, Her hair had been pulled out of its due, loose hairpins in it. Clothes were all still on, but her dress and skirt had been pulled up somewhat. Uh, one of the things I had to deal with in dealing with 1887 newspapers mm-hmm. is the, the, they're squeamish about anything sexual. Yeah. Uh, they, they couldn't say that her thighs were open. Uh. So what they say is, and I quote, uh, 
the left leg was flexed slightly at the knee and the right leg was flexed nearly at a right angle. <laughs> if you picture that. Yeah. Um, her face was discolored into a dirty yellow. The features were swollen, bloated, tongue protruding slightly, a bloody froth exuding from the mouth. Uh, there was a puddle of blood under the head, mostly coming from a large gash down to the bone on the right side of her forehead at the hairline. No blood on the victim's hands, bruising around the forehead wound. Um, so what they do is they immediately arrest Alonzo Stone, the husband. Family whisks the little boy away. And because then is now the thinking by detectives is uh, arrest the husband because the husband always did it. Uh, he's the only one who cares enough about the woman to kill her. Yeah. Well, what happens then is something that's strictly 1890s, 1880s. Uh, I, I can't think of a modern occurrence that's similar. There is great indignation in the city. In fact, there is an indignation meeting called by a, uh, a local man of the cloth named Professor Coates. Okay. And they have a meeting at the church and they decide that it's just outrageous that a, the, a pillar of our community like Alonzo Stone has been arrested for killing his wife. Obviously, it, it couldn't have been anything like that. Um, they, they, they decide to protest. They, they march on the jail. And the next morning when Alonzo Stone is in the courtroom, they're in the courtroom chanting for his freeing. Um, and the judge says, well, we don't really have any evidence that he did it. So, okay, you can go. Now, by this time, Professor Coates has the ear of the press. And apparently he enjoys that situation. <laughs> and he talks about, uh, I want to remind all Rochesterians that the groves, cornfields, and nurseries on the outskirts of the city are infested by scores of tramps whose only visible means of support is theft. Authorities heard that and a light bulb went on over their head. Now, there's an idea, a tramp, a no good, dirty tramp that'll fit the bill. So they went out looking for tramps who were in the area at the time of the murder, and they caught the one who was too crippled to run away. Uh, and that is a fellow by the name of Ed Deacons. He gives a false couple of false names before they figure out his real name. And uh, Deacons is, is a pathetic figure uh it's just uh, it's sad he's been a tramp since he was 10 and ran away from the orphanage mm -hmm. um i mean, just i mean just really sad and he denies doing it at first and what they do to him another 1890 thing that thank goodness doesn't happen anymore they stuck him in the women's prison which was empty by the way mm -hmm. no women criminals that summer in rochester um uh, Oh, you asked earlier how big it was. Rochester was 50,000 people at the time. It's a medium-sized city now, about 300,000 people, okay. but a large suburban community that brings it over a million. Okay. It's about half of the Bills fan base. Um, <laughs> now, one of the, thing that, one of the things that uh, before the, the tramp is arrested, uh, firmly in place and, and in place throughout the trial and everything else is this feeling by Rochesterians that there was hanky-panky going on in that house. Uh-oh. Reminds me a little bit about the, the John Bonet case. Yeah. I mean, there are people who, to this day, are convinced that the Ramsey's amorality is somehow responsible for their daughter's death. And very little evidence that there's any amorality going on in the Ramsey house or in, in the Stones house in, in 1887. John and Isabella Jones are Alonzo and Ada Stone's close friends. 
Uh, and the whispers about the four of them start immediately. They did everything together. When one couple moved to the neighborhood, the other couple moved so that they could be next door. Uh, if you asked one of them about the relationship between the foursome, they always used the word intimate. We're intimate friends, which may have not been intentional, but it's a word that's packed with dynamite. And I know it's true today still and probably true everywhere in the world. People are quick to think dirty things if they're given a little yeah. nudge. Yeah. Um, now, there's a, the story that, that set everybody over the edge was Isabella Jones, the, the friend, went to the stone house one day to retrieve her shoe. <gasps> Shocking. Her shoe. Um, she, she, re, yeah, she, she left the house without her shoe on. What must have been going on? Well, she says, well, it was summertime. I walked home barefoot. I only had one of my shoes with me. I didn't realize I'd lost the other until I got home and I went back and got it. No big deal. But that shoe, every time it's mentioned, people roll their eyes and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, years later, um, in, in an obituary, it mentions that the Stones and the uh, and the Joneses were close. It says they were they were uh, they were very very close friends, very very close. There was and of course everybody smirks and laughs a little bit. There was foot play of foot. It was yes yes yes. yes. <laughs> the game was not only a foot, so was the they, um, the part of the reason why they were quick to think these things is because. The Stones were a show business family. Although he was working as a tinsmith and, and she was a housewife at this point, she had sung in the Rochester Opera Company. Oh. She'd been the star of the Musketeers. Not to be confused with the Three Musketeers, but okay. I think it's about the Three Musketeers. Mm -hmm. uh, and her husband was a chorus, was, was a member of the chorus in that show, and that's how they met. So naturally, they're you know they're into group sex, I and mean, it's it's clear. Well, uh, yeah, I mean. but and, and you would think that maybe that would go away after there's an arrest, but it kind of doesn't. Yeah, you know, there's everybody's talking about the you know the evil little tramp who was a home invader and killed that poor woman during an attempted sexual attack, uh, as if he could commit a sexual attack. Um, and they're still saying, well, you know. Maybe she brought it on herself somehow. You know how she was. <sighs> anyway, that's that, that, that's that's the basic story, and right. of course, uh, they convince the 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 uh, the sixteen year old tramp they've arrested that even though he wants a lawyer, there's a, no real reason to get him one because what he really should do is talk to the district attorney who is a lawyer, by the way, yes. district attorney is a lawyer. Yeah. So go talk to him and he'll tell you what you should do. <laughs> Not sound advice. It's kind of the opposite of Miranda. Right. Uh, and what the district attorney says is, look, we got the goods on you, kid. If you don't confess, you're going to hang. So, the, so he starts thinking about how he's going to confess. And eventually he does. And he confesses like five times, I guess, practicing. Um, and at his trial, his confession is allowed into evidence, despite the fact that he was not, you know, he he denies its truth. He wasn't represented by an attorney when he gave it. And he gave it five times, a little bit different each time. And the facts in his confession still don't perfectly match the facts of the case. Um, for example, he never did quite figure out which stick he hit the woman with. 
he claimed it was a branch off a tree when in reality we know for a fact that it's a it's a stake being used by uh, surveyors mm-hmm. um yeah and, and they they during the trial he says i you know i i I, I confessed because they told me I had to. Well, how could you know the details you know? And what, what he says is, well, they would ask me a question like this. They'd say, you know, did you have to move the baby carriage off of the cellar door and then pull the ring to get the door open? And I would go, yes, I had to move the baby carriage off the cellar door and I had to use the ring to get it open. And then he would use that detail every time he answered that question from then on. Uh, until he knew exactly where the stone house was, where the rooms were arranged, and how he had to go about, you know, where where the woman's wounds were, how she was found, uh, and he, he still got some things wrong. And the, his defense attorney does a really good job of laying this all out, um, but I don't think that uh, that uh, jurors in Rochester in eighteen eighty seven were in the mood to listen to the the, the little guy was railroaded no. uh, stories. No, good old-fashioned you know, le- leading the witness, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, so anyway, he's uh, he is convicted, and uh, of course the story ends with uh, his last breaths, which uh, take place in the end of a rope in downtown oh. Rochester, 16 years old. Now, if you had to give it your best guess here, Michael, what, where do you think this leads? Who do you think? Oh, well, first of all, um, I think it's important that Alonzo Stone isn't working on the other side of town. He's working 150 yards away. Mm -hmm. He can get home, do the deed and get back without anybody seeing him, Mm -hmm. uh, but realizing he's gone. Um, I, I, I believe that, in most cases, the husband really did do it because he is the only one who cares. And, okay, if he's innocent and he could prove he's innocent, fine. And even if it's a tramp, it's not this tramp. Yeah. Yeah. He it, it, And one of the things that poor Ed Deacons tries to do is he tries to convince that he's not alone. I'm not wandering around alone. I'm with these other guys. Yep. If you didn't see them, then it wasn't me. Uh, but those guys are gone. You know, they got on a barge and went to Syracuse or they, they, they got on a railroad train and they went to, went to Pennsylvania, wherever they're scattered. Uh, and he's going to take the rap for it. It's just, uh, the, the other thing I noticed is that if you got shot in 1887, you usually died. Didn't make a difference where the bullet went. Yeah. Because without x-ray machines, they couldn't find the bullet. Mm-hmm. There was no such thing as exploratory surgery because you would cut the guy into pieces before you found the piece of metal. Um, so they would tend to leave it and infections would ensue and then the guy would die. I mean, there are some stories in the book that uh, I don't think would be murder cases today because they'd have gotten the guy to the emergency room and he'd have been fine. Yeah. 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 It, uh, that story is, is one of the, I think one of the most tragic stories I've read in, in quite some time and that you, you know, a young woman loses her life. You don't know why she loses her life. You don't, you don't get, and, and she was just 25 years old. You think about yeah. how young that is. Oh yeah. And with, with a three-year-old son. Yeah. Three-year-old yeah. son, you know, just. Well, that, that's, that's another thing. Ed Deacons didn't know there was a kid. Yeah. 
like the, the, the little boy's in the house when the murder is being committed, but the, the supposed killer, well, I never noticed a kid. And he doesn't, he doesn't lie about it. He just, I, I didn't, I didn't see him. And the, not only is there a kid, the kid is traumatized. The kid knows that a man attacked his mom. That's right. Well, that, that is a key factor that is mentioned once and never comes up again. This is, bef I think, I think Alonzo Stone is still in prison overnight when there's a rumor going around that little Raymond, little three-year-old Raymond, is saying that a dirty man hit his mommy. Yeah. Which would tend to take Alonzo off the hook. Yep. But, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I suspect that maybe the best theory is that, okay, you know, Professor Coates had a good idea, probably was a transient in the neighborhood, but it wasn't the one who was too slow to get away. Right, right. Tell you what, let's take our break right here. When we come back, we're going to tell you why shaving in the late 1800s was dangerous. <laughs> we'll lead in with that uh, when we come back. The book is a great one, folks. I want you to pick it up during the break. We have a link in the description of this program. Filthy Murders of Ye Old Rochester, Monroe County Homicide in the Era of Jack the Ripper, or as Michael wants you to refer to it, just Filthy Murders. Michael Benson is our <laughs> guest. He's the author of this great book. When we come back, why shaving in the late 1800s was so dangerous when we come back right here with our guest michael benson on true crime tuesday welcome back to the best in true crime podcasting this is true crime tuesday i'm your host tim dennis our guest is michael benson he is the author of filthy murders of yield rochester monroe county homicide in the era of jack the ripper or as michael refers to it just filthy murders if you just put that in your search <laughs> engines it should just come right up I thought ye old was easy to say, but people struggle with ye old. Really? They do? Oh, man. Um, I guess they haven't been to, been to London where everything's with the Charles Dickens ye old corner store. and the, A renaissance festival, Michael? I mean, come there, on. There you go. There you go. I mean, it, I mean, you just go to one in the summertime and they use it all the time. I mean, it's not that, it's not that difficult. It really isn't. <laughs> That's right. Um. There's an interesting story in this book about Charles D'Amico and his wife, who, let's just say, although she wasn't the most comely woman in, in Rochester and probably didn't win very many beauty contests, boy, did she get around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and Charles, unfortunately, didn't really grasp the art of shaving. Uh, maybe you could explain to us, uh, Michael, what exactly happened. Sure. Again, let me go to the glasses. It's <laughs> December 23rd, 1891. Charles D'Amico and his wife, Mary, are a poor couple with three kids from Mary's previous circumstances. Um, they live downtown Rochester on Pinnacle Avenue, which for Rochesterians out there, and I know you are, uh, is now known as South Clinton Avenue. Uh, both worked with different shifts. Uh, so Mrs. D'Amico left the house to go to work in the morning, not after Charles got home from the graveyard shift. Now, on this morning, Charles twice sent out the two of the girls to the corner saloon to buy whiskey. Sends, uh, sends one out with a dime and the other one out with a nickel. One comes back with four fingers of whiskey and the other one comes back with two fingers of whiskey, which he promptly drinks, gets drunk, and starts smacking the kids around. Um... Apparently a pattern <laughs> that, that, that the girls are used to. So they say, yeah, yeah, okay, he's in the smacking around stage. Let's hit, let's go to school. Jeez. So while Mary and the kids are away, Charles is almost beheaded. 
by a razor sharp blade. Oh. There is so much blood that it soaks through the bed, drips onto the bedroom floor, forms a river that goes out into the hall, down to the end of the hall, and then drip, 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 down the stairs to the main floor. There's a puddle of blood forming on the floor at the base of the stairs, all from one human being. The force of the blade had been so strong that it cut all the way through the neck and sliced into the pillow. The victim's windpipe and jugular were severed. Now, people downstairs start screaming when they see the blood. They run and they get the, the landlord, who's down the street a little ways. He comes, go, runs upstairs, splashes through the hallway, and runs out to fetch a doctor. Gets about halfway to the doctor's house and goes, no. And instead, he goes to the undertaker <laughs> and gets the undertaker to come. Now, can I stop now, you real quick here, Michael? Sh- sure. Because people don't realize that in this day and age, it wasn't a thing where, first of all, you called 911. That's a, that's a new thing. Right. Um, you didn't necessarily go grab a doctor or grab a a policeman in this situation or or even, even an EMT. You had to make a decision. You either had to go get an undertaker because it was too late or you had to go get a doctor because they're worth saving. You you had to make the decision, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, communications are one of the things, the things that are most fascinating about filthy murders. Um, the, the, the murders are tremendous entertainment for the city of Rochester. Unbelievable. The second there's a murder, little kids know their job and they run out and go, there's a murder on Hayward Avenue. There's a murder on Hayward Avenue. <laughs> like town criers, you know, British are coming. And everybody would go, oh boy, pack a lunch. And then they would go to the site of the murder and they'd hang out and see what they could see. And when there was an arrest, they'd hang out outside the jail. And when there was a trial, they'd hang out outside the courtroom and just, you know, eating popcorn, waiting for the the show to start. And uh, it's interesting. Um, But in this case, uh, I think the the most noteworthy thing about the the murder of of Charles D'Amico is his killer, a man by the name of Jacob Wolfschlager, who is hands down the funniest killer I I think I've, I've ever encountered. He was Mary's previous husband. Can't say ex-husband because he was still Mary's husband. (laughs) Um, She told police that he'd gone away and she thought he was dead, but that he returned and caught her by surprise. Not true. Wolfschlager went to Minnesota because he could get a job there and was sending Mary money when she, you know, home alone uh, with with the, uh, the border, Charles D'Amico, Said, hey, let's give the guest room a rest. Why don't you come sleep with me tonight? And <laughs> not, only, not only does she not think that Wolf Schlager's dead, she knows he's alive. And Wolf Schlager's back in town. Not terribly pleased. He seems to be taking it well. He's a good-natured fellow. But she's replaced him in, in her bed with a, uh, with a younger man, and he's not so happy about that. Uh, now, Wolf Schlager... I'm sure I'm not sure I have the facts straight here. I've tried to figure this out, but he spoke a tortured German mm-hmm. that German speaking translators couldn't understand. His English was so bad that he couldn't communicate in English either. Uh, so they were having a hard time finding translators who could translate him from whatever language he spoke to anything that anybody could understand. 
But at the crime scene, he's hopping up around on, on one foot than the other going, he killed himself, he killed himself. And Wolfschlager's alibi is that he lent Charles D'Amico his razor and Charles D'Amico uh, was shaving and had asked for Wolfschlager's razor because he knew it had a specially sharp blade. And he had killed himself by almost chopping off his entire head. <laughs> um, so the, the, the initial investigating officers are really starting to get cranky about this because what you, we, cause you have, a, we have a, a woman who's saying things like, it's okay that I'm a bigamist because Jacob was a bigamist too. He never divorced his previous wife either. So everybody's a bigamist, except for poor Charles D'Amico, only married once, and he's dead. Well, you know what they um, say, Michael. If it's yes. if it's big of me, it's big of you. So, <laughs> you and, and she's saying things to the investigators like, uh, oh, that Wolfschlager, he's 63 years old, much older than me, but I dare say he has the vigor and appearance of a younger man. And, you know, and the detective's writing this down going, oh, what? I still want to get away from this case. <laughs> so I, that, 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 that's the story. Um, I think the, the interesting and sad footnote, when we start with it, in the story, in Filthy Murders, a reporter goes around to the house where it happened, and the only person home is Mary's 12-year-old daughter, also named Mary, Deme uh, Mary, uh, Mary Cullen. And uh, she lets the reporter in, and she's 12, but very precocious, very well-spoken. She says, we're only allowed to go to the parts of the house that aren't taped off. <laughs> and, she, and she gives him an interview. And she, she tells him the, the domestic situation as she understands it. Uh, but then we, and the, the domestic situation is that mom uh, marries frequently because she needs money. And if she's without a man, she gets married right away. And it's happened again and again and again and again. And who knows if she's ever been divorced. She didn't think so. Jeez. But the sad footnote is that two years after D'Amico's death, when small Mary is 14 years old, she and one of her sisters is uh, arrested for vagrancy and immorality, oh. which makes me think that the uh, the search for uh, for money and men was uh, started early in Mary's daughters. Apple didn't fall far from the tree. I guess not. Yeah, you, you mentioned that... that uh, Mary, the, the woman in the, in the love triangle that resulted in the murder, was, was not the most beautiful woman in the world, um, as opposed to Ada Stone, who apparently was pretty good looking, if you, if you didn't pay any attention to her goiter, um, <laughs> was, was considered quite a looker. But, uh, but yeah, Mary, Mary D'Amico, not so much. If that, you know, I don't, who knows what her last name is? Now, Mary worked, didn't she work counting beans or something like that down at the store? Well, yeah, I wondered about that. So she, yeah, she works downtown. She works on the same block as Sibley's, which my dad worked for his entire career in the Sibley Tower building on Main Street in Rochester. Mm -hmm. uh, Sibley's was, Sibley, Lindsay, and Kerr was Rochester's number one department store. Okay. Um, then malls were built and the downtown version went out of bit. You know, downtown's pretty empty now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she worked, she worked counting beans, which... I guess if you said it today would mean you were an accountant. Sure. But I, 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 bean counter, I'm a bean counter at uh, the firm. It's, 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 I've heard people say that. I think she's actually counting beans or shucking them or something. She's, she's in there with her thumbs working. Uh, but then the, I probably, yeah, for a, uh, for a, you know, to, 
the ladies stand or something. The ladies around her had a nickname for her, which was interesting. Yeah, yeah, it goes without explanation, which is strange. They called her Black Mary, yeah, which uh, seemed to imply that bad things happened to her. Maybe she had a little dark cloud following her around. Yeah. Um, and certainly there was a dark cloud over her head on the day that her previous husband chopped off her current husband's head. Yeah. By accident. It, it seems like the gossiping ladies around her knew a little something. Well, yeah. Or, or they just came up with the nickname. Could be one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. You know, just uh, people get interviewed for the newspapers. You know, they'll they'll say the thing they want the report. They think the reporter wants to hear. True. I mean, there were people that gossiped about the Stones and the Joneses too. So, oh, there were. Yeah. Oh boy. So I could just I can imagine my mom being one of those. Yeah. <laughs> she was. She she was convinced that there were all sorts of horrible things happening in every house other than ours. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, you know. And, and she, she was only wrong about three quarters of the time, but. <laughs> what's, what's life if you don't make it interesting, Michael? I mean, that's right. That's true. That's true. Uh, we got time for one more story here out of the book. Okay. Let's talk about the carnage at the Cottage Hotel. I, I find this interesting in that, you know, there's, there's fine upstanding businessmen uh, in the community and sometimes good things happen or to good people. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And this happened to be a bad thing that happened to a good person in the community. Yet it was mysterious. Yes. Again, this is something that could not have happened in Rochester today. Um, for one thing, uh, takes place in Shalott. Which now, is spelled like spelled I, like Charlotte. Another one of those names that isn't what it is. That's that's exactly right. right. Oh, oh, that pink stuff around your teeth. Yeah, gooms, gooms. What gooms? <laughs> You've got to get all the way to Batavia before somebody will say gums. Really? Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> anyway, this takes place in, in in what was then the beach resort town of Shalott. Spelt like Charlotte, um, probably a French pronunciation of some sort, because we're right across the lake from Toronto. Sure. Um, and, and it's part of Rochester now, but at the time, it was a place where people with money went to play and a place where people without money went to steal. Okay. So, you know, it's a bad thing happening to a good person, but it's not a good person who doesn't know the risks he's taken. Okay. And it's a good person who enjoys visiting a brothel on Friday nights. Mm -hmm. All those things that don't make him a bad person. But he is definitely stepping. He, he's taking a walk on the wild side, let's say, on this yeah. Friday evening. He's, yeah. he's, he runs a cigar shop probably on the same block as the bean counters. I mean, he's, he's, he's in downtown Rochester on East Main Street. So he has a cigar store. So he knows most of the men who work in business because they stop and buy cigars. Mm -hmm. Women, not so much. The only women who seem to know him are the ones who uh, work in houses up in Shalat. So on this Friday night, he goes up there and he gets tanked. And uh, it's early morning hours. He ends up going into the cottage hotel, still on his feet, asks for a room. The... Uh, the attendant says, we're all sold out. He says, I'm an important guy. You know, I'm, I'm Howard Abbott. And well, in that case, I'll give you my room. So the, the desk clerk lets him sleep in his bed. And 
give you an idea of how how, how uh, the class difference was. Howard Abbott says, I'd like to leave a wake-up call. <laughs> He's sleeping in the guy's bed um, and bleeding from a wound on his face. So he, he, he goes to sleep in the bed, and uh, the clerk comes back to get him the next morning and finds him dead. Ooh. Yeah, a huge lump on the back of his head. They find out that he died of bleeding on his brain. And he is missing his expensive watch and chain that he's so proud of. So that that's the rest of the story is detectives trying to trace his movements, which involves ladies of the evening and, and trolley cars and streetcars and, and various hotels he went into and following the ne'er-do-wells of the neighborhood as they were you know, pickpocketing and, and doing everything they did. There was one group of guys who may not be associated with this story, but their their shtick was that they would go up to a, a rich-looking man and say, hey, did you see the body on the beach? And he'd go, no. And, and again, it's a world without television and radio, so the body on the beach is big. They would want to miss that. Right. And once he, they got out on the beach, they would mug him and, and take his money. And that was what they figured happened to Howard Abbott. Um, and they were sure that's what happened when the next day there's a, a, a ne'er-do-well type who's going around from bar to bar trying to sell Howard Abbott's missing watch. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got the watch. He must be the killer. Right, right. And there's there's a performer that, that essentially says, yeah, someone tried to drag me down to the beach with the same, the same type of, you know, right, uh, sure. deal. And, 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 and the eyewitness testimony is, is I, I suspect almost useless uh if rochester the city of rochester is dark at night boy shallot's dark yeah you've got all the lights are going to be on the hotels and and the in the bars and everything out by the water is just going to be you can't see your hand in front of your face yeah uh, i know that there, there are no lights around the um around the, the, the streetcar lines yep um and uh, you know eventually they, they find eyewitnesses who, who say uh the accused killer who is a fellow named Patrick Gavin, whose crime was he tried to sell the victim's watch, uh, that they saw him mug Howard Abbott. And there were people who said, I saw Howard Abbott being mugged and it was a completely different guy doing it. And Abbott himself has a night. It's hard to determine exactly where he sustains his fatal wound. We know he's walking around after it because he walks into the to, to the hotel and looks for a room. Yeah. Um, th there's one streetcar driver who thinks his streetcar might have struck him because he sees him unconscious near the tracks. Although he gets off the train, you know, says, are you okay? The guy says, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just, just resting. He says, all right, gets back on the, gets back on the car and leaves. Um, and there's also a, a witness who says he sees Howard Abbott outside the closet, which is, took me a while to figure out, that's the restroom. <laughs> the, the closet outside the hotel is, uh, is an outbuilding. And he's out there laying on his back on the ground, and there's a man lying on top of him. Hmm. Now, and the story also includes a, a group of men who go and sleep all together in, in a tent on the beach and mm -hmm. allow live farm animals to wander around with them. So I don't know what's going on here, <laughs> but I suspect it's uh, it may not necessarily all be mugging and stealing. Right. There, right. May, be, there may be other stuff happening as well. Uh, stuff that's you know, illegal in 1887. Huh. Every bit as much illegal as stealing a guy's watch. 
Interesting. Um, so, so yeah, uh, this might be a case where today they might have tried to negotiate with the fellow they arrested, maybe a charge him with a lesser charge. But what they do is they end up going to trial twice with this case, saying that because he had the dead man's watch, he must be the man who killed him. And the defense attorney saying he found the watch on the ground. Who mm -hmm. knows that anybody killed him? Right. Um, and it's uh, it's a uh, it's a filthy something, but I'm not sure it's definitively a filthy murder. It's an interesting case. I know that. It's a very interesting case. Yeah. He got some interesting stuff that happened in that area in that time there, uh, Michael. That's for sure. That's uh, it's 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 not a sleepy little town. That's for sure. No, no. And, and the two stories we're not going to get to. One is a brother killing a brother. Yes. Which is a heartbreaking case about a you know a lifetime of abuse and and the the, the bullied person finally fights back and of course has no control over himself. Um, and the other one is. Uh, Kind of a, an interesting case of two Italian immigrants in a bar who get in a fight over one of their sisters, and again, there, there's gunplay. And that's the case where I think if they had gotten the guy to a hospital right away, he might have walked home in the morning. But instead, instead of taking him to a hospital at all, they take him to the police station, and they question him until he folds over. Yeah. And then they lift up his shirt and go, hey, this man's got a gaping wound in his stomach. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, interesting times back then. And uh, the, the, the murders are filthy in intent, in hygiene, in every way. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But we, we wanted to leave those cases for people to pick up this book. And again, Absolutely. folks, this book is very intriguing. The cases in it uh astounding. For, I mean, you would think Rochester, sleepy little town, there can't be much that would go on there. But these murders are filthy indeed and uh, rich in... Not only details, but things that will make your skin crawl, that will make you wonder why things like that went on in that time period. Filthy Murders of Yale, Rochester, Monroe County Homicide in the Era of Jack the Ripper is the name of the book. Uh, we have a link in the description of this program. Go get it right now. Uh, Michael Benson, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Tim. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you. Folks, it's time now for us to lighten things up a bit. It's time now for Dumb Crimes and Stupid Criminals. It's, it's Crayon News Story Time. What happened with this dude, Christbearer? I heard he uh, cut his penis off and then jumped off a balcony. Suspect pulls gun from butt, shoots twice at Denver police. What is your emergency? Uh, and what's the problem? I'm too high. You're too high? Yeah. It's that time once again, the time you've all been looking forward to. It's time for Dumb Crimes with Super Criminals. And with that, we bring in a co-hostess, a co-hostess with the mostest. Let's bring in Ms. Mally Fox. Mally, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Not too shabby. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a good weekend, very good mm -hmm. weekend. I spent the weekend, of course, with our guest Michael Benson's book and uh, watched a little wrestling at the same time that I did my shift up at KNSI. Okay, cool. So you had a busy weekend. It was a busy weekend. I, I, I managed to combine both of those. Um, uh, you know, the WWE was over in Australia, so it's weird that they started a pay-per-view at four in the morning, but... Mm -hmm. it, it happens sometimes. So sometimes love and work uh, cross paths. That didn't sound right, I know. <laughs> um, but sometimes it happens. 
Sometimes mm-hmm. it happens. Do you have a good weekend? I did. I did. I caught up on some things that I've been putting off. So things around the house and, you know, enjoyed the nice weather, all that good stuff. So, yeah. It's really warm here today. As we tape, mm-hmm. it's 58 degrees. Nice. Yeah. For February. Hello. I know, right? End of February, mm-hmm. it's it's unseasonable. Seasonable? Unseasonable? I, I, I don't know if that's the right word. Um, so I went outside with a fistful of blueberries. It doesn't sound right either. Uh, looking for spud. Mm-hmm. And I uh, just called out to my buddy, and I put him down there on the ground. And I went out to check a little bit later. They were gone, but he did not uh, make an appearance for me. He didn't come out to say hi to me. He just took my blueberries and ran. Gotcha. So, yeah. So I know he's out there, but mm-hmm. he's just being shy. It's kind of like the groundhog. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If I see his shadow, uh, six more weeks of summer, I guess. But uh, if I don't see him at all, then <laughs> we're we're bound to determine to have a little bit more winter, I guess. Just means he's sleeping a little bit more. Right. So uh, today on Dumb Crime, Stupid Criminals, Mal, we're just going to foreshadow just a little bit before, before we jump into it. Um, we... Uh, we only have a small, not safe for work section, and it's a timid one at that. It's not not too bold. Mm-hmm. And we are going to, unfortunately, have a bit of an obituary, but not like you think in the not safe for work section today. Okay. Not quite criminal, but criminal, nonetheless, that this place is going away. Gotcha. You may not think so, but some people will. Okay. Okay. There's your teaser for dumb crime, stupid criminals. We'll start first, though, Mally, with this much. Your wife, girlfriend, or significant other will tell you, see, I told you you should have listened to me. Guys, guys out there. um, There's a reason why she says that to you. And a Texas man found out firsthand, although he did get caught. I'll tell you what the story is here, Mally. A Texas man made $1.7 million trading stocks after eavesdropping on his wife's calls. Oh. Yeah. Turned out real good at first. Not so good. <laughs> after he actually made some uh, trading trading, uh, t- trading profits after some insider trading tips. Gotcha. See, guys, you're supposed to listen to your lady. You're not supposed to necessarily follow up on some of that stuff. It's Some of that's illegal. Yeah. So she was unaware what he was doing? Oh, yeah. She didn't do it. Okay. She didn't do it willingly. No, no, no. Okay. No. He was supposed to listen to, honey, take out the garbage. Mm-hmm. Uh, honey, go out there and do this other stuff. Not, uh, oh, by the way, I'm over here doing business. Honey, don't listen to what I'm doing. He didn't listen to that part. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. We go to Houston where a word to the wise, if you overhear your work from home spouse taking or talking business, uh, just forget anything you may learn from it. It's kind of hard to do, but you have to do that nonetheless. And most definitely do not trade stocks using what authorities will almost certainly view as insider information. 42-year-old Houston man Tyler Loudon learned this lesson the hard way. He pled guilty last Thursday to securities fraud for buying and selling stocks based on details gleaned from his wife's business conversations while both were working from home. Mally, he made $1.7 million in profit from the deal and has agreed to forfeit those gains. Now, To lessen his jail time or? 
I think I don't think he can hold on to it regardless. I mean, he was caught red-handed. Yeah. Now, has Mr. Fox ever made $1.7 million off anything you do for a living? <laughs> no. No? No? Okay. Just, <laughs> no, not just, at all. Just curious. <laughs> uh, things might have turned out differently had Loudon or his wife decided to work from well the office. We'll put it that way. Loudon's wife worked as a mergers and acquisition manager at the London-based oil and gas conglomerate BP. They got a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Just saying. So when Loudon overheard details of a BP plan to acquire a truck stop and travel center company based in Ohio, he smelled some profit there, Mel. Oh. Yeah. He bought more than 46,000 shares of the truck stop company before the merger was announced in February of 2023, at which point the stock soared almost 71%. Wow. Yeah. Loudon then allegedly sold the stock immediately for a gain of more than $1.76 million. His spouse, by the way, was unaware of his activity. That according to the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Texas. How do you hide $1.76 million from your spouse? Well, maybe they have separate bank accounts. My in-laws do because one likes to spend more money than (laughs) the other. (laughs) Whoops. Uh, Loudon will be sentenced on May 17th when he faces up to five years in federal prison and a possible fine of up to $250,000, according to the U.S. Attorney's Office. He may also owe a fine in addition to other penalties in order to resolve a separate and still pending civil case brought by the Security and Exchange Commission. Mm. So he went from being up $1.7 million to down a quarter million and possibly more. Sometimes it doesn't pay to listen to the wife. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not all the time. Don't get me wrong, Mel. Just, mm-hmm. just saying in that case. Keep on digging. Yeah. <laughs> Grab I, that shovel. I, I, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm doing. Let's move on. 21-year-old man tried to buy a Porsche with $78 million. It wasn't in cash, though, Mally. It was a check that he decided to write for $78 million. I thought you were going to say Monopoly money. Oh, that's a good way to try and buy one, too. Mm-hmm. Only problem is they're... The money's colored different than our own. <laughs> I learned that the hard way once when I tried to buy a mansion with Monopoly money. Gotcha. Didn't work very well. We're going to meet a, ga- a guy by the name of Connor Litka. This 21-year-old last week walked into a Porsche dealership in Louisville. Louisville. No, no, no. It, don't, don't do that to me, Mally, please. No, it's Louisville. It's one not, syllable. It's not. It's Louisville. What, who is the statue in the middle of town? Uh, downtown? Downtown. There's a huge statue. The person that the town is named for. Oh, the king? Yes. Okay. What's the king's name? Um, is it... Louis the Fourteenth. Exactly. So the town, town's name is what? <laughs> it's not Louisville. Yes, it is. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> Mally, I've spent a lot of time on this show. My family's from Louisville. <laughs> They're from Louisville. 
Would you like me? Would you like me to hey, at play? At least you're not saying Louisville. That drives me nuts. It's not Louisville. Would you like me to play a clip from the great Casey Kasem saying it the correct way? Because I have. He says Louisville. He says Louisville. Mm. And we all know Casey Kasem is the king of diction. <laughs> Mind you, I said diction. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that they have Versailles in Kentucky, but I think they call it Versailles or Versailles. Yeah, they don't know. It's a weird pronunciation. See, they don't know. <clears throat> they don't know how to pronounce things. <laughs> you can't count on people from Kentucky. <laughs> Nor Minnesota. Why would you Ooh, say I that? Ooh, I saw a Minnesota th- Minnesotan there. Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Didn't you? Careful, your soda is showing. Louisville. Louis. It wasn't King Unless he was having a stroke. It was King Louis. People asked me why I didn't correct you the other week. For what? You said it that you said you said you said it when we were talking about Kentucky a week or two ago. And you you said it the way you said it, just I'm not gonna repeat it. I'm not gonna say it the way you say it. I refuse to. What did I... Wait, what? You said Louisville the wrong way, and I didn't correct you a couple weeks ago. Oh, I said Louisville as yeah, Louisville? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, so, and people said, you need to correct me? Yeah, they said, you, you didn't, Tim, you didn't correct her. I said, well, well of course not. Like, I didn't say anything Was about that it. because you are being a gentleman, or that's because you yes. knew my family's from there? Okay. Yes. <laughs> I, I just, I let it slide. Okay. Yeah. They're like, you didn't say anything, Tim. You didn't say anything. Well, of course I didn't. I wasn't going to. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows who the statue is in the middle of Louisville. It's King Louis. Right. Mm-hmm. That's all we need to know. Okay. <laughs> it's only the people from the town who mispronounce it. Okay. Right. Anyways, we're... The Porsche dealership in Kentucky. That's how we're going to refer to it from here on out. <laughs> he went there and sought to purchase a car with a $78 million check. When told by employees, and by the way, it's only somebody from that town who would walk in and write a check for a Porsche. Don't you think? No. Well, he wouldn't put it takes it on. all kinds to make this world go around, and I think every city has a few of those. Well, he wouldn't put it on a credit card. I mean, they still do use the old slide machine for them. Mm-hmm. They're in Kentucky. They haven't caught up to the electronics yet. Stop. <laughs> when told by employees at Bluegrass Motorsport that they were not going to sell him the vehicle, Lick kind of allegedly walked to the parts department looking for keys. He's a bright one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Litka ignored requests to leave the dealership until he got his vehicle, according to a police citation. Fearing that something bad was going to happen because of Litka's behavior, a worker called cops who arrested Litka after he again refused to depart the Porsche dealership. Charged with criminal trespassing and disorderly conduct, both misdemeanors, Litka is scheduled to appear in district court a day before trying to pass the $78 million check, which you would think would be pretty easy. It's Kentucky. Stop. 
Licka attempted to purchase a vehicle from a nearby Land Rover dealership. Well, he should have passed it one way or another, right? Mm-hmm. He was only carrying a check for $12 million that day. Jeez. That should have been a slam dunk. The citation lists Licka's residence as an apartment complex in Bloomington, Indiana. Should be easy to pronounce that, too. <laughs> what is that one? Bloomington? <laughs> Stop it. No, that's Bloomington. It's not Bloomington? <laughs> I mean, come on. Don't we slur the rest of our cities? Stop. That was Bloomington. Which is about 100 miles away from Bloomington. <laughs> sound like you're having a stroke. Well, that, don't they all sound like they're having a stroke? <clears throat> I mean, isn't that how it goes? According to his LinkedIn page, Licka is a business student at Indiana University. <laughs> he might want to rethink his major. Yeah. <laughs> Where he enrolled in 2021. So let's see, it's 2024 now. He's still in line to get his degree, but I'm betting he's still a freshman. <laughs> probably, it sounds like it. It's probably on the 10-year plan over there at Indiana University. Just saying. He's from Indiana University, but he went across the, the border to Kentucky to buy his Porsche. He's a bright one. <laughs> Let's move on. Police are investigating possible drug sales at a liquor store, Mally. Now, if you were going to pick up your drugs at a liquor store, what do you think the name of the liquor store would be? Ooh. Um, I don't know. Would you be surprised if I told you there's a liquor store in Georgetown by the name of 420 Liquors? I am not surprised. Yeah, not at all. That would pretty much tell me that I could get my weed there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Georgetown police figured it out, too. <laughs> and they found what is believed to be a large quantity of marijuana at 420 Liquors after executing a search warrant. That according to GPD Assistant Police Chief Josh Nash. He said, we received a drug complaint tip and we were able to find multiple pounds of marijuana, surprise, or what we believe to be marijuana that they were selling to people openly in the store, Nash said. The marijuana is pending testing at the lab to confirm, but more than likely that is what we they were uh, doing was selling marijuana out in the open. No arrests have been made and the investigation is ongoing. This is not an open and shut case. There is way more to it, Nash said. I think he's he's just being, you know, modest. Did someone like set up a little stand and start selling <laughs> marijuana? Kind of like Girl Scout cookies outside of the grocery store? Oh, I don't know. At 420 uh, Liquors, I think you pretty much just go in and they probably have it right under the counter for you if you just ask. Mm. I'm pretty sure. The store's owner declined to comment, but as of 5 p.m. on February 23rd, the store at 420 North Broadway in Georgetown, just a coincidence. Oh, okay, that's why they have four. Okay, got it. Wink, wink. Just a coincidence, Mal. That uh, that store was still open. Uh, this story, it says, will be updated as more information becomes available, like if they're changing the store location over to Heroin Boulevard. <laughs> Just saying it could happen. You never know. Let's move on. A Pennsylvania burglar stole two quadrillion dollars in currency. Okay. I'm not making that up. This burglar got a hold of two quadrillion dollars in currency. The richest burglar in history. 
but he got caught. Police report that a suspect made off with a 16-figure haul after burglarizing a Pennsylvania residence earlier this month. Wasn't even a bank he knocked over, Mally. Mm -hmm. Did he steal art? We're about to find out. Somebody in Pennsylvania had that much money laying around. Mm -hmm. Investigators say that the Bedford home was broken into on February 6th by an unknown individual who made off with several pieces of jewelry, silver dollars worth $20. So that's $20 of the whole deal. Mm-hmm. So knock that 20 bucks off. That's how he got caught. He was jingling. He was jingling, yeah. You're right, Mel. And $2 quadrillion in currency. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you here, Mel. Don't give it away. Here's just one of the bills. Oh. (laughs) Right? I wonder what it's really worth. (laughs) Oh, come on. Now, what Mally's referring to is the fact that this burglar got away with Zimbabwean currency. (laughs) Oh, yeah. According to a police report, 20 Zimbabwe $100 trillion bills were swiped by the burglar. That burglar's rolling in dough, son. Mm-hmm. Or at mm-hmm. least he thinks he is. Oh, I bet he saw $100 trillion and darn uh-huh. pissed himself. I mean, wouldn't you? How many zeros is that? That is, let me see, I'm going to count here. Three, Quadrillion. Six, nine, 12, 15 zeros. Okay. In trillion. It's 15 zeros. For some reason, the report values the stolen currency as worth one million U.S. dollars. However, the Zimbabwe bills issued during a period of hyperinflation are essentially worthless as currency. Instead, they are sold as a numismatic oddity for around ten dollars a piece. Oh. They're really not worth anything. Mm-hmm. The burglar also escaped with thirty dollars in loose change. He got the change jar, Mally. Right. He's jingling all the way. Yeah, he is. Oh, that's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. (laughs) So essentially, here's what was stolen from the property. He did get some stuff that was worth something. He got some engagement rings that were worth $1,500. Okay. Okay. A gold turtle necklace that was worth $25. Got a blue diamond ring that was worth $250. Got a ruby ring that was worth $150. Got a ruby necklace that was worth $150. Got a jade necklace worth 50 bucks. Got a diamond heart necklace worth 500 bucks. Those silver dollars, by the way, that were worth 20 bucks. Mm-hmm. $30 in loose change. And then on the last line, 20 Zimbabwe, $100 trillion. And then they listed it at a million bucks. As now, now, the insurance, if you have insurance on the home, mm-hmm. the insurance company's going to go, whoa. Right. Do you think they're going to pay out on that deal? Oh, I highly doubt it. Probably not. They're probably going to look up the real value and go, that's nah, worth 10 bucks a bill. You're not going to make much. So did the guy rob the house because he thought it was like a million dollars sitting there? Or was it just a random house that he just happened to get lucky in? I think it was a random house. Gotcha. Yeah. Didn't know if it was like an inside job. Oh, maybe. Maybe it was one of the heirs who thought, I, I better take my inheritance now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 
could be one of those deals. Let's continue on, Mally. Uh, Atlanta can be a place of wonder, a place of splendor, a place of nightlife that can awe the senses. Or it can literally be a pain in the butt. <laughs> Are we talking about the driving? <laughs> I don't like driving Atlanta. Well, yeah, that, that can be a pain in the butt, too. <clears throat> no, I'm talking about a literal pain in the butt, Mal. We go to Atlanta where a woman was shot in the butt after an argument, which led to gunfire outside an Atlanta nightclub. That's why I don't party in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An argument between two women led to gunfire on Saturday morning in Atlanta. Police said just after 1.30 a.m., officers were called to Grady Memorial Hospital regarding a person who was shot. Atlanta police said they found a 34-year-old woman who was self-transported to the hospital after being shot in her, shot in her left buttock. <laughs> I did get the right pronunciation on that deal. Shot in her left buttock. The investigation revealed that the victim was at 2507 Donald Lee Holloway Parkway Northwest when she was confronted by another woman she knew. The victim and the woman got into an argument that escalated to gunfire, Atlanta Police Department said. The suspect ran away following the shooting. Do you figure she ran away in high heels or flats? (laughs) If she ran away in high heels, that must have been quite the sight. But she must have already been running if she got shot in the butt. No, I'm talking about the suspect ran away in high heels or flat. Oh, yeah. I thought you were talking about the victim. No, no, no. She didn't go anywhere. Please, when you get shot in the butt, you, you're down. Yeah, you're not, you're not going anywhere. Neither the victim's nor the suspect's identity was released because of obvious, obvious uh, embarrassment, I think. The investigation, by the way, Mel, is still ongoing. Okay. Yeah. And when you get shot in the butt and live, is that a small caliber bullet? Maybe she just has a big bum. Oh, you're saying she could take a big load. Oh, jeez, Louise. Oh, my goodness. Just saying. Mm-hmm. I think we should probably move on from big butts to big big pythons, if you know what I mean. Eh. Yeah. A New York man who smuggled pythons into the U.S. by hiding them in his pants, you heard me right, has been sentenced to probation and fined $5,000. Idiot. (laughs) Although if you are going to smuggle a python, to say that you have it in your pants is probably the best thing to say to TSA. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, is that a python in your pants? Are you happy to see me? A New York City man was sentenced on Wednesday to one-year probation and fined $5,000 for smuggling Burmese pythons into the U.S. from Canada in 2018. 38-year-old Calvin Batista of Richmond Hill, New York, was sentenced in the Northern District of New York after previously admitting to smuggling three Burmese pythons into the U.S. during a bus ride from Montreal to the Big Apple on July 15th of 2018. <laughs> Three Burmese pythons on the bus. Uh, I do not like snakes. I would not do well. I'm tired of these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking bus. They were going to say it was on a plane. and be like, <laughs> oh, it's like the movie Snakes on a Plane. No, it's on a bus. It's the low-budget version, Mal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The bus he was on passed through the 
Champlain Port of Entry in Clinton County, New York. The pythons were discovered when Customs and Border Protection officers were reviewing Batista's passport and conducting a border search, according to Friedman. The young adult snakes were inside... My God. Were inside snake bags attached to his pants near his inner thigh. Ugh. So they Mm. saw, like, wiggling? Yeah. Oh, God. They're kind of doing the little shake thing. Yeah. Burmese pythons are not native to North America and are considered an invasive species. So are other things, if you know what I mean. Uh, And Batista did not have the permits and documentation required to bring them into the country. By the way, uh, I'm not showing you a a bad picture here, Mally. That is a Burmese python, and it's happening. Oh, good God. Yeah, look at that. Yeah. Uh, according to court documents obtained by the Associated Press, Batista purchased the snakes at a reptile store in Canada. They were worth more than $2,500. The Burmese python is one of the largest snakes in the world and considered to be a vulnerable species in Asia, which is its native continent. The case was investigated by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and CBP was or and by CBP, too, it was prosecuted by Assistant U.S. Attorney Alexander P. Wentworth Ping. Batista's attorney had no comment when contacted by the AP, except for uh, my client is innocent. He just has uh, elephantitis. So that was that deal there. He couldn't just wait till he crossed the border and then get the snakes? No, no. Uh, the whole point of it is the fact that uh, they were cheaper up in Canada. Mm-hmm. Then you smuggle them down here and you sell them for more. Yep. That's that's the game there, Mel. Mm. Yep. All right. Uh, we move on. We move on. We move on. We move on. Now, we make a lot of fun of Florida Man on this, this show. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't celebrate him a lot, Mel. But this past weekend, Florida Man was celebrated. Okay. It's happened once a year since 2013, I believe. It's called the Florida Man Games, Mally. And big crowds were on hand to cheer competitors in uh, such events as evading police and wrestling over beer. Oh, okay. I'm not making this up. We go to oh, say, really? I thought you were. I thought you were being sarcastic. No, 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 no. Oh. This, is, this is a real event. We take a break from committing crimes and celebrating dumb criminals to, well, literally celebrating dumb crimes and dumb criminals. You know what they should do? They should have, remember when there were a couple of stories that we talked about over the years where it was a drunk person, like in a recliner on a mower, like they should have like more races in the recliner drunk. Yeah, the Florida Man games. Yeah, I know, but that should be one of the one of the um, games. I'm about to tell you about the Florida Man games. It sounds like you have one of the events in front of you. Oh, yeah, they rose up by the dozens from across Florida, Mally. Let me tell you about the Florida Man games. Caricatured competitors in tank tops and cutoff shorts for a showdown that treats evading police and wrestling over beer like Olympic sports. Okay. Promoted as the most insane athletic showdown on earth, the Florida Man Games pokes fun at the state's reputation for bizarre stories that involve brawling, drinking, gunfire, reptile wrangling, and other antics carrying a risk of time in jail or intensive care. 
The games kicked off Saturday with the Star-Spangled Banner played on electric guitar, of course. Mm-hmm. Then spectators sipping canned beer behind metal barricades cheered and frequently shouted expletives as a dozen teams battled in contests inspired by real events from America's most surreal state. James Gordon of DeLand won the first event, wolfing down a plate loaded with barbecue pork and sausage a fraction of a second before his nearest competitor. He then chugged a beer to celebrate. That's just the warm-up, though, Mel. Okay. He says, I lived in Florida my whole life, Gordon said, after washing sauce from his hands and beard. Uh, They're calling these events, I'm calling this shit Tuesday afternoon. Yep. One event had contenders dueling in muddy water in an inflatable pool, pummeling each other with weapons made from pool noodles and duct tape. Another was a theft simulation relay in which competitors raced while toting a pair of bicycles, copper pipes, and catalytic converters. Mm. I told you they're celebrating crime down there in Florida. (laughs) Larry Donnelly trained for the relay race by riding a bicycle around his neighborhood with a second bike strapped to his back. (laughs) it paid off saturday when he won the heat after picking up a bike in each hand and running with them dear god i have an absolute disregard for self-preservation i will do anything the 42 year old donnelly who owns a saint augustine pressure washing business and serves as captain of the five-man team hanky spanky said When I was in the military, I did a little alligator wrestling, he went on to confess. Other events involved contenders wrestling sumo style while holding pitchers of beer and running from actual sheriff's deputies while jumping fences and avoiding obstacles. Others face a scramble to grab cash lying in simulated hurricane winds. (laughs) God. Spectators paid real money, $45 per ticket and more to watch this, Mally. Oh, wow. Yeah. To watch those games at Francis Field in downtown St. Augustine, Yusuf El Shibibi said he and his wife made the 180-mile or 290-kilometer trip from Port St. Ritchie. I know where that is, by the way. To watch stupidity occur on the grandest, most spectacular scale. Organizer Pete Melfi said he expected ticket sales to exceed 5,000 He said he was stunned to find nobody else had beaten him to the ripped from the headlines idea for a spoof sporting event. Here's his quote. We kind of give a person an opportunity to live a day in the life of Florida man without ending up in a cop car, said Melfi, who runs the St. Augustine media outlet, the 904 now. But he had to tone down some racier aspects of the Florida man mythos to obtain a permit. There's typically drugs and nudity, he said, but the city frowned on it when I asked for drugs and nudity. (laughs) I suppose they would. The Florida man phenomena seeped into the national consciousness, thanks in part to a Twitter account that started in 2013 with the handle at underscore Florida man. The account touted real life stories of the world's worst superhero, sharing news headlines such as Florida man bites dog to establish dominance And Florida man tried to pay for McDonald's with weed. (laughs) (laughs) Florida's claim to being the strangest state goes back much further, said journalist Craig Pittman, who wrote the book, Oh, Florida, 
how America's weirdest state influences the rest of the country. He noted that the first flag to fly over its capital in 1845 bore the the motto, let us alone. That's a good motto, by the way. Mm -hmm. Apparently, nobody listened, and Florida today has 22 million residents, the third largest population of any U.S. state, and they all share roads, beaches, and timeshares with more than 130 million tourists per year. You can cram that many people together. They're bound to start running into each other's cars and chasing each other with machetes, Pittman went on to say. That's an apropos quote for us to stop the article right here, I believe. Uh, Pittman also noted that they have also been plenty of crazy stories featuring Florida women. We don't want to discriminate against them. And oh, pl- no, let's not. <laughs> yeah, and plenty of them uh, turned out to watch the games on Saturday. Sally Yarborough and her daughter Danielle got tickets as a Christmas gift from their boss, along with a case of vodka. So, yeah, there you go. To each their own. The Florida Man Games, Mel. Uh, how much would you pay for a ticket? I would say maybe 25. <laughs> 25 bucks? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know that I'd go that high. Maybe 10. I give you a 10 spot. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, one of the other things that comes from Florida that we all must salute at one time or another, maybe only in a drunken stupor, would be the restaurant Hooters. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're going to go to our not safe for work part of the program. If you have kids in the room, I don't know why you would after celebrating Florida, man. Uh, It's time to escort them out of the room. If you're at work, put in your earbuds. We'll give you till five, four, three, two, one. Hooters restaurant. Who hasn't been to a Hooters in their day? Have you not been to Hooters? I've never been. What? Nope. Seriously? Seriously, I've never been. Well, Mally... I hear they have great chicken wings, but I've just never been. They do. They ha- they make an excellent wing, or you can convert it to a chicken sandwich with the same sauce. Okay. Yeah. Uh, right down the road from our Hooters, uh, there is a place called Twin Peaks. No. Which is supposed to be, yep. It's supposed to be the same kind of thing as Hooters. Really? I think. That's what I've heard. I've never, I haven't been there either. But yeah, Twin Peaks. You need to shock the mister and just tell him you want to go check it out one night. <laughs> I have no problem with it. I just well, it's not, I'm not a chicken wing person. I mean, it's, it's. I mean, this is this is the the uniforms that the ladies wear. Yeah, at Hooters, it's not. You know, it's not not like you're seeing nudity or anything. No, no. Uh uh-uh. uh So, yeah. and back in the day, didn't they get boob jobs? Didn't the boss pay for boob jobs or something like that, or I don't, help donate towards it? I don't I remember that part of it, but maybe I don't know. I hadn't heard that part of the lore, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Well, it's a sad day in West Virginia, and Mally, I just ask that our congregation bow their heads and prepare for a small eulogy as a West Virginia town plans a candlelight vigil. And I'm being serious here. For a beloved local Hooters, it's being demolished. Aww. <laughs> yeah. Aww. It's a sad day for Charleston, West Virginia. If you've ever spent any time in the Mountain State's capital city, chances are that you've ventured over to the Hooters in Kanawha City. I've never been to the Kanawha City Hooters now. Can't say I have. The writer of this article says they used to live a couple of miles from that Hooters and spent many evenings there enjoying the uh, wings and beer 
we'll go with that. Okay. <laughs> but unfortunately, the beloved restaurant closed its doors in 2020 and has sat empty ever since. While the community held out hope that one day the Hooters would make its triumphant return. What Hooters has ever closed and came back? Yeah, good question. Not, none of them. We've had two of them close here in Minnesota, never came back. Mm. They're not Jesus. <laughs> they, don't, they don't die and then rise from the dead. Nothing like that ever happens. Mm -hmm. Generally, when a restaurant closes, they're gone. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that the building has officially served its last chicken wing there in Kanawha City. It was recently announced that the Hooters building would be demolished to make room for a Sheets gas station. Well, okay. finally, it's functioning. I'm just saying that, you know... <laughs> I wonder if you could go in there, like if you were a regular patron mm -hmm. or a patron, if you could take like a booth that you always sat at, <gasps> just like a little souvenir and then put it in your house. Like they did with the Met Center when they when they shut it down. They Everybody mm -hmm. took a piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe. Uh, and then the author says, which honestly, if you're familiar with Sheets, is still a win. So Sheets for Hooters, they'll take it. Mm -hmm. didn't even trade what do you think of sheets you've been at a sheets gas station haven't you yep uh-huh they have good subs yeah exactly yeah so good trade but before the iconic hooters building comes down for good residents of charleston are planning to pay their respects to the place that holds so many memories for them which is a candlelight vigil mm. an event on facebook <laughs> God, <clears throat> has been created for the memorial to the beloved hooters with residents planning on meeting at the building this Friday one final time. Oh, I'm shedding a tear. Yeah, we're doing something. Do you know the comedian Fortune? Yeah. She um, has a big uh, thing about Hooters, because that's where they used to go for their birthday parties. Seriously? Yeah, her yeah, like her mom. <laughs> her mom and like everybody would go there for birthday parties. Birthday parties. Uh-huh. Hmm. I do have kind of a cute story. About Hooters? Yeah, I do. Okay. Intern Yoko's nephew. When he was he's now a, a he's now a tween. He's he's almost a teenager. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say he's a teenager by now. When he was little little. I'm talking little little. Like, you know, maybe three years old when he would have tantrums I'm, I'm talking screaming crying gnashing of teeth mm -hmm. there's very little that would settle him down I don't know what settled him down boobs he wanted to go to Hooters to see the pretty ladies and to see mm -hmm. the boobs <laughs> I kid you not Mally it was magic he didn't want to go to Disney to see Mickey. He didn't want to go to Universal Studios to see Spider-Man. He wanted to go to Hooters to see the pretty ladies with the boobies. Mm -hmm. I witnessed it firsthand. I'm sure you did. Oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I'll tell you what. But we said to him, buddy, want to go? Do you want to go to Hooters and see the pretty ladies? And he said, yeah, I want to see the pretty ladies with the boobies. And I said, thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> <laughs> and we did. We went and had lunch. 
And mm-hmm. he looked and looked and he followed him all over the place. Funniest lunch I've ever had. <laughs> and it continues to this day. <laughs> That's how it calms down. That's how it calms down. Like mother's milk, so to speak. I'm just saying. <clears throat> Anyways. So this event description, do you want to hear it? It's kind of weird. Sure. It says, it's finally official. We all have in one way, shape, or form been holding on to pure hope that someone would purchase the closed building down that was once the almighty Hooters and reopen it. <laughs> the almighty Hooters. <laughs> uh, that seems to not be the case. The building will begin being demoed on February 26th of 2024. With this being said, let's all gather in remembrance of the amazing power that was brought to us all by Hooters with a candlelight visual. It says visual, Mally. Okay. Not a vigil. Mm-hmm. A visual. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. At the Kanawha City location. Bring your candles and signs and let's let Hooters in the city know we will miss it tremendously. We will have chicken wings with the traditional Hooters sauce on site and a limited amount of the goat sandwich, the strip cheese. Oh. Wait, what? Yeah, that's a, that's a Hooters sandwich, the strip cheese. Oh. Please share and be there every hour's happy hour at Hooters. Oh. 300 people, by the way, RSVP'd for the event. Wow. Yeah. Um, many of them shared their fond memories from better days. Would you like to hear one of the memories? <laughs> okay. <laughs> These guys are taking a little bit too serious. <laughs> they are. They're really into it. They're really into it. Ooh, Lordy. Here's uh, one of the best ones. I once saw a dude snort a line of black pepper on a dare at this Hooters. <laughs> R.I.P. Sounds more like a college bar. It really is. Yeah. So there you go. Rest in peace to Hooters in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Let's continue on, Mel. It's our, our not safe for work portion of dumb crime, stupid criminals. What's the best way to get out of a DUI arrest, you may say, in Las Vegas, Mally? Run. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're going to run, run in a straight line, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Best way to do Don't it. Don't fall over in the bush. That's right. Don't fall over in the bush. <laughs> I say it's to recite the alphabet and stop at the letter P. Okay. But when you stop at the letter P, do more than just stop at P. Prove you can pee. Oh. That's what one man did. He urinated on a Las Vegas officer's leg during his DUI arrest. Oh. Mm-hmm. We go to Las Vegas. A man was placed under arrest on suspicion of driving with a revoked license and driving under the influence. By the way, he also urinated on a police officer while being booked into a Las Vegas detention center. <laughs> oh, my. Because he's really smart. That Well, that didn't enter into the equation. On Monday at around 2.15 a.m., police responded to a call about a possible domestic disturbance in the area of Flamingo Road and Boulder Highway in southeast Las Vegas. The call indicated that a man, later identified as Frank Afoa, had been chasing a woman, documents said. When officers arrived, police documents said they saw a vehicle driven by Frank Afoa speeding down Flamingo Road. Police pulled Afoa over while he was on the 
on-ramp on northbound US-95, the arrest report said, adding that his vehicle stopped in the middle of the on-ramp. That's not a good place to stop. The woman alleged that a foe attempted to hit her with his car, according to the report. When officers checked a foe's record, they found that his driver's license had been revoked due to him previously driving while having a revoked license. According to police documents, police, that's according to the documents, Additionally, police found OFOA failed to meet requirements of convicted felons to register their place of residence. Indeed, police documents said OFOA would only tell police he lived in Samoa. He worked in Las Vegas and refused to give officers his current home address. Automatically being a little combative, right? Mm -hmm. Officers were told by OFOA's ex-wife that he had entered Arizona Charlie's, walked up to the bar and began drinking heavily. Afoa's ex told investigators that she saw that he was very drunk and invited him to stay at her nearby home. Documents said Afoa initially agreed, but according to the woman, while walking to her vehicle, he became agitated, entered his own vehicle, and began, and began driving aggressively. His ex-wife told officers she followed him to make sure that he didn't get into a crash and called police. According to police documents, officers said Afoa had bloodshot, watery eyes, was slurring his speech, smelled of alcohol, and was swaying while standing still. And funny, there was no music. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> he told police he was coming from his girlfriend's house, where Afoa admitted that he had had something to drink. According to the report, he refused breathalyzer and blood tests, forcing police to obtain a search warrant for a blood sample. While en route to the Clark County Detention Center, an officer said Afoa had threatened to kick out the patrol vehicle windows, not a good move, when he was not allowed to urinate on the side of the road, and it also threatened to punch the officer in the face once he was released from his handcuffs. Oh, boy. Yeah, not, not a move we like to do at the welcome wagon. You know what I mean? Mm -mm. Yeah. The document stated that once inside the detention center, Afoa removed his penis from his pants and urinated <laughs> directly onto the officer's leg and on the floor of the CCDC. Oh, boy. Again, not a move we, we co-sign on at the welcome wagon. <laughs> mm. Afoa was booked into the detention center without any further incident. Mm. He faces charges relating to have failed to register his address as a convicted felon, unlawful acts related to human excrement or bodily fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Driving with a revoked license and driving under the influence. Do you think when he reached in for little Afoa, uh, he, <laughs> he started to recite the alphabet and stopped at P? Doesn't it sound like it get past probably G? <laughs> Oh, uh, you never know, Mel. Hmm. Speaking of vile acts. Okay. <laughs> the opposite of P is what, Mel? Ew. You're close. Put a P in front of that. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to, uh, where are we going to? I know there's a Texan involved here, so I'm assuming it's Texas. <laughs> I should never assume. When you assume you make an ass out of you and me, and what comes out of that ass is what we're talking about right now, Mally. Um, yeah, we're going to Texas. And we're talking about a man, 60 years old, who should know better, Mally. Right. Who is wearing a kilt. And when okay. you're wearing a kilt, Mally, you have what? 
nothing underneath that kilt. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So a man goes into a store. And, uh, you know, when you go inside a store, sometimes you got to use the restroom. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going nowhere with this. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to hook up how this guy goes into a store and decides to do vile acts with his, his butthole. <clears throat> Ew. <laughs> I know. Let's meet Mitchell Cooper Vest. He's six foot six inches tall, weighs 250 pounds. He's wearing a kilt. For okay. some women, that's a turn on. But not, uh, not after what he gets done doing at the end no. of the story. Yeah. He's known to wear a kilt from time to time, which made it easier for Texas business owners to identify the 60-year-old vest as the man who recently came into their antique store and shoved various items up his rectum before placing them back onto the shelf for display would become to known. Mally, you like antiquing. <laughs> I do, but I don't like shoving things up my hoo-ha. <laughs> or my bum. <laughs> that's not how you test a good antique, is it? The crush test? No. This antique can take so many pounds of pressure? Ugh. I don't think so. Police allege that vest... By the way, this is what the guy looks like. Would you buy an antique crushed by this guy in his no. rectum? But I saw the video of him doing it, and it looked like, you know how like little kids, when they're about to go to the bathroom in their diaper, yeah. they get that face? Yeah. Like, it looks like they almost start breathing. Yeah. He was, he was looking like that. Oh, my God. Like he was holding his breath. <laughs> Police allege that Vest entered several shops in Spring, Texas, a Houston suburb last week, and engaged in criminal mischief, a misdemeanor. Specifically, cops say Vest first entered the Antique Gallery of Houston and placed a makeup brush, oh dear God, and a restoration hardware piece in his anus before returning the merchandise valued at $130 to the shelf. Of all the things you're going to stick up your bum, you're going to do a makeup brush? Well, maybe he needed a little rouge in his cavity. Just then. Vest then showed up at the Curiosity Shop, which is located inside an antique mall. The shop's owner, Alicia Osborne, told police that Vest took an antique bottle opener. Oh. Uh. And a tobacco tent can. Total value is 74 bucks, by the way, if you're keeping track at home or playing the prices right. And place them into his anus under his green skirt or kilt. I would say kilt. Don't ever argue with a man in a kilt and call it a skirt. Uh, then return the items to the shelf. Why is he returning them? To watch somebody handle it after he did it? That's just wrong. In both instances, the merchandise handled by Vest had to be thrown away due to feces on them. <sighs> I wonder if anyone got pink eye. Oh, that's a good question. Very good question, Mel. One store surveillance camera recorded Vest browsing. That must be the video, said video you were talking about, Mel. Here, uh, here's a picture of, of said Jeez. fecal felony, if I may. <laughs> I'm just envisioning, you know how when they, when um, you see 
when it's like the ER and they show like an x-ray of objects that are not supposed to be up there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of all the ones that they encountered, I keep picturing what this guy is doing and just like envisioning the x-ray of like the bottle opener or the, you know what I mean? Yeah. You ever think he's gotten stuck with the buck, if you know what I mean? Oh, I would think so. I think he's ever gone in there just to try a, a casual fitting and ended up having to buy the merchandise, if you know what I mean? Apparently he hasn't learned his lesson. I guess not. After complainants identified Vest via a photo array, he was charged Thursday in connection with the vile February 10th incident. Vest was freed on how much bond, Mally? Oh. For his, how should we put it, his um, anal robbery. I'm going to say 2000 Let's go a little lower. 1000 As Mr. Vest would say... Let's try lower. Seriously? Yeah. Like 500? Because he didn't really steal anything. He just shoved up his butt. <laughs> You're so eloquent when you say that. I know. My mom would be proud. Yeah. Uh, right now, the foxes are sitting around the listening device going, that's our gal. That's uh, why she's not texting me because yeah. <laughs> back in the day, if I said something... <laughs> <laughs> when we were on the radio, I would get a text from my mom. They would say, Melissa Fint. Yep. We did not raise you that way. That's right. Um, Vest was freed on only $100 bond, Mel. Ooh. And is scheduled for a February 23rd court appearance. Mm. I would think it would cost the it would cost the actual employer more money to clean those objects. Yep. I knew they had to throw them away. They spent more on the merchandise mm-hmm. than the actual bond. It doesn't make any sense. No, the, it doesn't. No, the crime costs more than the actual bond. Sounds like he needs a psych evaluation. It does, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Now listen to this. With his wife, Vest owns a $600,000 home in the Woodlands, which is a community close to Spring. He's listed as retired in one court filing. This guy can afford to buy everything he's shoving up his ass. This guy's married? Yeah. I bet you his wife is proud. Uh-huh. I, I don't... <laughs> There's comments to this story. Would you like to hear some of these comments? Sure. Sometimes that's the best. A guy by the name of Benjamin says, quotes, with his wife, Vest owns a $600,000 home in, in the Woodlands, community close to spring. He says, just another crazy retiree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, one guy says, be glad the sick, you know what, wasn't in a foodie place or 7-Eleven. Oh, I can't think of that. I can't think of that now. Another person says, well, it was called the Curiosity Shop after all, and he was curious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there you go. That's some of, the, some of the comments. You know, it's at this point, it's a fetish. It's, that's all yeah. it is. It's a fetish. It's, it's not anything sexual. It's not, you know, it's a fetish. And believe it or not, it goes back to, it goes back to a childhood thing. It's purely a childhood thing. Sticking things up your bum is a childhood thing? It is. Uh, Much like when kids stick things in their fingers or in different orifices. 
It's okay. not it's not a sexual thing. It's 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 a psychological thing. Hmm. Yeah. I know a lot of people will think it's a sexual thing. It's not. It has to do with going into a public place doing this knowing it's forbidden and being caught or being caught on camera or being caught by a clerk. It's it's being done for a thrill. It's a psychological thing. Hmm. Yeah. Has nothing to do with anything sexual. <clears throat> so it feels like it to mm -hmm. us. We want to take it to that extreme. But it has everything to do with crime and punishment. And being bad. Mm. Weird. It's a childhood thing. Okay. So, yeah. Psych 101, Mel. Mm. Yeah. I must have, <laughs> must have been sick that day. <laughs> I don't remember hearing about that. <laughs> yep. So that's Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals for today, folks. If you got a story you want to pass along to me for Dumb Crime Stupid Criminals, you can send it to Tim at darknessradio.com. I welcome your submissions. I want to thank uh, Michael Benson for being on the program today. The book is Filthy Murders of Ye Old Rochester, Monroe County Homicide in the Era of Jack the Ripper. Some entertaining and spine-chilling stories in here, folks. You never thought Rochester, New York was that type of town, especially in the late 1800s. But you are going to enjoy and be chilled by the stories in this book. I've got a link in the description of this show uh, for you to order that book. Uh, Mally, what you got going on this weekend, especially with Paranormal Girl? Nada. Nothing? <laughs> How's that Nothing? for Nothing? Nothing. All right. Nothing. Living day by day. Living, living, I like that. Living day by day. <laughs> Taking things by the seat of your pants, so to speak. Mm. I like that. Well, check out paranormalgirl.com, folks. Uh, lots of good stuff at paranormalgirl.com, including merchandise, recipes, and much, much more. Uh, check out Mally on Strange Evidence. It's available on demand on Max. If you have Max, if you don't have Max, go get it. We have a link in the description of this program. And as far as I go, uh, not at KNSI Radio this weekend, uh, but you can check out the events section, darknessradioshow.com. Potographs for pooches in May at the Palmer House Hotel here in Minnesota. Very few tickets left for this thing, folks. They have gone quick. But if you want to join myself, Tim Miley, and Richard Estep up at the Palmer House, please do so. The proceeds for this go to the Eagle's Nest Shelter for Animals. Uh, we want to raise as much money as we can for the animals. So please get your ticket for that event on May 18th. Um, what else? Uh, what else? What else? What else? Oh, oh, I may have some big news coming up here soon. Mal. Ooh. Around the time of WrestleMania. Okay. Yeah. Very exciting. Oh, you need to tell people, though, you're going to be at Michigan Paracon as oh, well, even yes. though that's a long you know, a long time away. Still, it's coming up. Yes, that's also that's also at darknessradioshow.com events. Right underneath Potographs for Pooches, you'll see the banner for uh, Michigan Paracon. I'll be at Michigan Paracon as well. So click on that, get your tickets for that. Uh, Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan in August is absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll be there once again this year. So, uh, And Mally will be there too. Yep. Yeah, so come see both of us out there. We'd, we'd love to see your smiling faces and say hi. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so there may be some big news on the horizon here. We'll keep you updated around WrestleMania. I'll just give you the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. Very exciting. Leave you on the edge of your seat with that. Mm. There you go. Um, That's about it. That's what we got for today. Tomorrow on the big show, Supernatural News. On Thursday, Mally, we have a very Mm -hmm. interesting show. Uh, You know, a lot of times in the paranormal, we're focused on the here and now and what is going on in our world. And sometimes we like to look at things that are influenced on our world and, and works of fiction. There's an author out there by the name of Eileen St. Laurent, who's going to be joining us on the program on Thursday. And she has written a book that is absolutely fascinating. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. And I'll tell you, I'll give you just a little hint as to what this book is about. The name of the book is called My Neighbor's Good Life, Mississippi. It's basically the voice of a 12-year-old girl named Myra who tells 11 stories of encounters that she's had with her neighbors. Some of them are dead, some are alive, but all of them lonely souls who reveal guiding truths and teach Myra a deeper meaning for life. Now, there's some paranormal spins in this book as well. Okay. And some fascinating paranormal stories within this book. So, we're going to talk to Eileen about this book on Thursday. So, fascinating read so far. So, figured I'd sprinkle a little something different on you this week. Very cool. Yeah. So, uh, every once in a while, we like to uh, we like to throw the occasional good read at you. We're throwing this good read at you this week. So, there you go. No trademark in that now when I say good <laughs> read. So, there you go. So, that'll do it for today for True Crime Tuesday. We appreciate you listening in. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we look forward to bringing more good programming here. And hope you join us for the rest of the week for the best in paranormal programming darkness radio thank you so much for joining us today for the best in true crime podcasting you've been listening to true crime tuesday